Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Over 200 hours of audio presentations are available on our website for you to download and burn to a CD for use in your car or home stereo, or to play on a portable player, such as an iPod. If you don't know how, visit our website for some instructions, or just listen to the presentations on your computer. Also available is a schedule of our upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All this is available at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. This program, entitled Lives of the Apostolic Fathers, was presented by Sabatino Carnazzo, Director of the Institute, at St. Michael Catholic Church in Annandale, Virginia, in March 2010. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness of your holy martyrs and fathers who sealed their testimony in their own blood to give us and transmit the faith to us. We ask you to fill our hearts and minds with gratitude for their great gift. And we now pray, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of the faithful, and kindle them in the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and we shall be created, and we shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit instructed the hearts of the faithful, grant by this same spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, our subject tonight. Remember, just by way of review very quickly, Father Fortescue says about the Apostolic Fathers, they are first in order of time, first in importance in every way. They are the immediate disciples of the Apostles whose age ends at latest by the year 150. They include Barnabas, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, the Shepherd of Hermas, Papias, and a few other writings. Ends at 150. In other words, the Apostle John dies in 100. I put some dates up here for you. St. Paul's martyred in 65. St. Timothy in 97. St. Ignatius in 117. Uh, St. Polycarp. Oh, I missed John there. John's martyred in about 100, 110. They, they debate about it, okay? What did I say? I'm sorry. You're right. Thank you. Good Catholics. Look at that. Well formed. Very good. Died in about 100, 110. John, of course, was the only apostle that was not martyred. Um, St. Ignatius martyred in 117. St. Polycarp in 155, who we're going to be uh, uh, reading tonight. And St. Irenaeus, who is St. Polycarp's disciple, who ends up becoming Bishop of Lyon in France, and writes a bit about Polycarp, his father in the faith. And it's from Irenaeus that we learn the most about Polycarp's life before his martyrdom. He is martyred around the year 200. This is the time, the bridge between Christ and the apostles and the church as we come to know it, as we come into the Council of Nicaea and Constantine converts. And when we start to see that seed that Christ spoke about, that mustard seed, become the oak tree that it would become. And it's at this time that we can learn and see the faith as it's handed on from the apostles then to the Council of Nicaea, the fathers of the Council of Nicaea, and so forth. It is said that many of the bishops who attended the Council of Nicaea, which condemned Arianism, were there with limbs missing. They were scarred from the tortures they had endured. Many of them had endured 
the, the tortures of the martyrs and had lived to tell the story. Okay, and they were there at the council. And so we're, we're in this time, this bridge. We uh, looked real quickly at 1 Timothy last time and how St. Paul tells Timothy to go to stay in Ephesus. Timothy becomes bishop of Ephesus and it's there that he defends the faith against the Gnostic heresy and does a good job at it. He is martyred in 97. John, who's on the island of Patmos, you have your, your um, maps there in front of you? You'll find Patmos. I wrote it in for you. If you can find Ephesus, you find Ephesus, drop straight down, and you see I hand wrote in there for you Patmos. All right, Patmos is that little island right off the coast. Patmos is from Patmos that John writes the book of Revelation. And within that book, in the first, uh, what, one and two, ch- two chapters, he writes his seven letters to the seven churches of the Apocalypse, of the book of Revelation. And they are the churches that he was overseeing, and they're written in order according to the mail route in which the the postman would have taken the mail out. And among those letters are a letter to Ephesus, at that time just before Timothy's martyrdom. Timothy is still bishop there and receives this letter to Ephesus. To the Philadelphians, he writes a letter, which we're going to find out tonight, Polycarp, also writes a letter to. And, to le- and a letter to the church in Smyrna, where Polycarp is bishop. So Polycarp receives the letter from St. John as he's out on Patmos. You can see how these things are connecting. Okay, There's no great break between the end of the scriptures and the beginning of the apostolic writings. As I said last time, the early writings of the church were, before we ever had a Bible we're, we're, with, a, with a binding, and here's where it begins and here's where it ends, the apostolic fathers, the writings, were held by the church in great honor, and they were read in the church as epistles. The epistle of Clement was considered, and it's, it's, it's included in the canon of many who wrote at that time, who listed for the church what was in the scriptures, what was in the canonical scriptures, and what wasn't. Clement's letter, which we didn't, we're not going to do in this series, is in that list oftentimes. So the the line was not all that clear at that stage, and that just goes to show you how valuable these writings are. Of course, Paul tells Timothy to appoint other men who could carry on to teach the faith, and still others. Three generations long, ensuring that the faith is held on to in the midst of the different heresies that were taking place. John, in the year probably 95, uh, maybe a little earlier, was boiled in oil, as I said last time in Rome. He lived to tell the day, and the emperor saw it happen. He says, I'm not touching that man again. Sent him off to Patmos. We read in John's letter, and I I read this quote to you last time, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Remember this. This is the fight that's taking place. Initially, the Judaizers, or the circumcision party, had been pushing for the Christians to have to accept all the laws of the Jews. Huh? In other words, you had to become a, become a Jew before you accepted Christ. And the first council of the church was called in Acts chapter 15, where Peter stands up and says, not so. And then the following that heresy, then the heresy of Gnosticism began to boil up, where they denied the goodness of creation, and therefore the possibility of the redemptive work of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And by extension, the good of the Eucharist. The Gnostics refused to eat the Eucharist. And this is what we read in Ignatius' letter last time. Among these heretics, the Gnostic heretics, 
in Ephesus was a man named Serenthus, one of the leaders of the Ephesian community of Gnostics. And this is what Dr. Carroll says about this man. Serenthus and most of his followers were not really Christians, but disappointed Jews who could not endure the shattering of their hopes by the catastrophe that had struck Jerusalem in 70 AD. We just had our program on the fall of Jerusalem with Dr. O'Donnell. In the shadow of that disaster, their hatred for the created world grew. The world haters had left Judaism while never really embracing Christ. Outcasts from both faiths, they had made up their own synthesis with elements drawn from the degeneracy of Hellenistic philosophy, a pale mask of pride over the face of death. It is said, Irenaeus recounts, that when John, the Apostle John, went to one of the, to bathe at the bathhouse in Ephesus, he encountered Serenthus. And when he saw him, Irenaeus says, John, the disciple of the Lord, going to bathe in Ephesus and perceiving Serenthus within, rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, let us flee, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of truth, is within. You remember I read from you John in his epistle saying, don't even encounter these men. Stay away from them. Don't bring them into your home. And so a real sense of the danger of heresy. Why the danger of heresy? Because if, you're, if your knowledge is off about the truth, so will your love be misdirected. And when your love is misdirected, your salvation is in danger. Heresy is a major problem. And in the early church, they took it very seriously. It was in that context that we met St. Ignatius last week, who again, martyred in 117, eaten by lions in Rome. He stopped in the city of Smyrna. Pull out your map again. He stopped in the city of Smyrna, right? The Episcopal See of Polycarp. He spent some time there with Polycarp. And it's from there that he wrote his famous letter to the Romans, which we quoted last week. From Smyrna, he traveled to Troas. If you find Troas there, that seaside city where they stood, they waited for a boat. And it's from there, he wrote his letter back to Polycarp. I want to quote for you. You don't have it in front of you, but I just want to quote very quickly a short paragraph from that text to give you a sense of it. This is Ignatius back to Polycarp now. Since I had been impressed by the godly qualities of your mind, anchored as it seemed in an unshakable rock, it gave me much pleasure to set eyes on your sainted countenance. But let me charge you, as, you, as he's writing this, just imagine, here's a man that Polycarp thinks very, very highly of. It was Ignatius who introduced him to John. And he's going to be reading this letter and taking it to heart. And he's going to be also martyred for the faith. And so just listen to it in that context. It gave me much pleasure to set eyes on your sainted countenance, but let me charge you to press on even more strenuously in your course, in all the grace with which you are clothed, and to call all your people to salvation. Critical times like these need you, as the bark needs a helmsman, or the storm-tossed mariner a haven, if men are to find, ever to find their way to God. Be strict with yourself, like a good athlete of God. The prize, as well you know, is immortality and eternal life. You must not let yourself be upset by those who put forward their perverse teachings so plausibly. Uh, the Gnostics and the Judaizers. Stand your ground with firmness. Like an anvil under the hammer, take care that the widows are not neglected. Ignatius mentions the widows too. You remember that, right in the context where he's talking about the Eucharist? 
Why do you think he's so concerned? Take care of the widows. Because the Gnostics refused to take care of the widows. Because it was better for them to die than to live in the flesh. So this, it was a mark of the Christians, the authentic, the orthodox Christians, to hold fast to the goodness of the created world and to take care of all of those things, including the widows. Take care of the widows and that they're not neglected. See that nothing is ever done without consulting you and do nothing yourself without consulting God, as I am sure you never do. As I have to leave, for, leave Troas, okay, so he's writing this from Troas, by sea for Neapolis at any moment, it is impossible for me to write to all the churches myself. So will you, as one who possesses the mind of God, write ahead to the churches along the route? You are the fitting person for this task. There it is. Polycarp receives his assignment from Ignatius. And he will use that instruction for the remainder of his life, making sure that he holds on to what Ignatius has written and distributing them to the different churches so that they can be read in their churches for their, for their salvation. Like Ignatius, we know very little about Polycarp's life. However, St. Irenaeus and a few others give us a few points that we can hold on to. Tertullian says that Polycarp was ordained to the episcopacy over the church in Smyrna by the Apostle John himself. And Irenaeus tells us that Polycarp conversed with many of the apostles and that he knew and held regular converse with many who had seen Christ. You can imagine those conversations that he must have had with these people. In love with our Lord and wanting to know every detail about him and he had access to them. He faced a number of difficulties as bishop in Smyrna. Smyrna was a very prosperous city at the time, and it was the center for the state cult, or the, the worship of the rulers of the Roman Empire, primarily the emperor himself who had declared himself to be a god worthy of worship. We're going to see, as Polycarp is put on trial, that come out, because it's that issue that Polycarp will not budge on, he will not offer incense to Caesar as a god because he knows that there is one true god. And it's there in the context of Smyrna the reason that's taking place. To add to the difficulties uh, as bishop of Smyrna, we see the old heresy of the Judaizers uh, or the cir circumcision party pop up again. In his letter to the church in Smyrna, John, writing in the, in the, uh, the book of Revelation, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. What's going on? The Judaizers are making all sorts of problems within the church in Smyrna. They're persecuting the true Christians, and they're trying to force the church into a pigeonhole, into a place that it should never go. And John was very concerned about this. He knew the issue taking place, and he went right after it. Many will point to that, that epistle in the book of Revelation and say, look, there's full bore, full blown, the anti-Semitism of the early Christians. Not so. The early Christians were Jewish. The early, early Christians were Jewish to a man. They held on to their faith, and they never once saw themselves as leaving Judaism to follow Christ. They saw Christ as the fulfillment of every prophecy that the prophets ever offered. And when the Jews did not accept Christ and rather turned against them, they did not see them as doing the work of God, but the work of Satan. 
So not anti-Semitism at all. This would be so foreign to the, to the minds of these men. Those Polycarp would have to face in Smyrna pined for a restoration of Jerusalem, which less than a century before had been destroyed by the Romans. Not only had some turned like Serenthus to a Gnostic Christianity or a Gnostic form of Christianity, others attempted with the Judaizers to impose the old law on the young Christian community, but still others more zealous for the Jewish faith, like St. Paul before his conversion, went after that the young church, the early Christians, with a vengeance, with zeal, and perpetrated on the church unspeakable cruelties that I cannot tell you about. And it's these cruelties that these men that we're reading now are enduring. Polycarp, like his father in the faith, the Apostle John, was a great defender of orthodoxy. And following John's advice, avoided heretics at all cost. You remember the story I just read you about Serenthus when John goes into the bathhouse and says, get out of here lest the roof fall in. Irenaeus recounts that when Polycarp one day came across the arch-heretic Marcion, who was, you might say, a, a form of, of, of Gnostic. He was, in a sense, a, an early uh, father of the Manichaean heresy. When he came across the arch-heretic Marcion, who in reaction to the Judaizers had thrown out the Old Testament and believed with some of the Gnostics in a certain dualism similar to that of the Manichaeans a hundred years later, when, when Marcion, who had by this time been ordained a bishop, met Polycarp on the road, he asked Polycarp, Do you know me? Polycarp responded, Yes, I do know you, Marcion. I know you as the firstborn of Satan. In the wake of Ignatius's visit, Polycarp collected copies of Ignatius's epistles and distributed them. One of the churches that requested those writings was the Church of the Philadelphians. And Polycarp penned the only extant letter that we have to that church. And I want to read you just one paragraph quote from it. It does my heart good to see how the solid roots of your faith which have had such a reputation ever since early times, are still flourishing and bearing fruit for Jesus Christ. In him, endurance went so far as to face even death for our sins, but God overruled the pangs of the grave and raised him up to life again. Though you never saw him for yourself, yet you believe in him in a glory of joy beyond all words. And now here's where Polycarp turns against the Gnostics again. To deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is to be the Antichrist. To contradict the evidence of the cross is to be the devil. And to pervert the Lord's words to suit your own wishes by asserting that there is no such thing as resurrection or judgment is to be a firstborn of Satan. Now listen to his encouragement to the church in Philadelphia. Let us never relax our grasp on the hope and pledge of our righteousness. I mean Jesus Christ. Let us imitate that patient endurance of his. And if we do have to suffer for his namesake, why then let us give glory to him. For that is the example he set us in his own person and in which we have learnt to put our faith. Stand firm then in these ways, taking the Lord for your example. I am sending you Ignatius' letters as you requested and if you should have any certain news of Ignatius himself, apparently as he's writing this to the church in Philadelphia, he had not heard yet that Ignatius had been martyred. That's how close to the text that we read last week this is taking place. 
if you stand firm in the faith, if you should have any certain news of Ignatius himself and his companions, pray, let us know. Farewell to you and all your people and the Lord Jesus Christ in grace. In his old age, Polycarp, probably 83, 84, maybe even 85, took his last trip. And it was a trip to the eternal city of Rome. And there he met Pope Anicetus and defended the faith against the heretics in Rome. Irenaeus says this, He it was who coming to Rome in the time of Anicetus caused many to turn away from the aforesaid heretics to the church of God, proclaiming that he had received this one and sole truth from the apostles, that namely which is handed down by the church. Polycarp then left Rome, traveled back to his hometown in Smyrna, and shortly after that was arrested and martyred for the faith. You have before you the text. And like last time, if you're coming here, if you're here for the first time, I'll give you the, what we're doing here. I'm spending a few minutes of introduction. That was probably much longer than it should have been. And then we're reading the text. I don't want to do the church fathers without having you be able to taste what it was that they were all about. It would be, it would be a disservice. Like I said last time, it's like having a Bible study without the Bible. We don't do that at the Institute of Catholic Culture. So I want you to have the text. This is the complete text of the martyrdom of St. Polycarp. It is the most ancient extant description in detail of a martyrdom we have. You notice last time Ignatius' martyrdom, was very, the actual martyrdom was very short. This one is much uh, more involved and very beautiful. So like last time, we're going to read this. It's going to take us about 20 minutes. You have a question. Who wrote this? A man named Marcion, not the heretic that we just read about, but a man named Marcion who is there, present. You're going to see it at the end of the text. He saw Polycarp martyred, and then they wrote the text down for us uh, 2,000 years later. And so, here we go. I'll do the best I can. Yes, one question. Uh, when I looked it up on the internet, there were translations by five or six people. Do you know who uh, I, This text I took off of New Advent because it's a Catholic site. We can trust it. Um, there's a link to New Advent on our website, and it's got tons of resources. The Catholic Encyclopedia, it's got the Church Fathers and so forth. So I figured there's a good, good site to take it off of, okay? The Martyrdom of St. Polycarp. The Church of God which sojourns at Smyrna, to the Church of God sojourning in Philomelium, and to all the congregations of the Holy and Catholic Church in every place, mercy, peace, and love from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied. We have written to you, brethren, as to what relates to the martyrs and especially to the blessed Polycarp, who put an end to the persecutions, having, as it were, set a seal upon it by his martyrdom. For almost all the events that happened previously to this one took place that the Lord might show us from above a martyrdom becoming the gospel. For he waited to be delivered up even as the Lord had done, that we might also, that also might become his followers, while we look not merely at what concerns ourselves, but have regard also to our neighbors. For it is the part of a true and well-founded love, not only to wish oneself to be saved, but also all the brethren. All the martyrdoms, then, were blessed and noble, which took place according to the will of God. For it becomes us who profess greater piety than others to ascribe the authority over all things to God. And truly, who can fail to admire their nobleness of mind and their patience with that love towards their Lord which they displayed? 
who when they were so torn with scourges that the frame of their bodies, even to the very inward veins and arteries, was laid open, still patiently endured, while even those that stood by pitied and bewailed them. But they reached such a pitch of magnanimity that not one of them let a sigh or a groan escape them, thus proving to us all that those holy martyrs of Christ at the very time when they suffered torments, were absent from the body, or rather that the Lord then stood by them and communed with them. And looking to the grace of Christ, they despised all the torments of this world, redeeming themselves from eternal punishment, the suffering of a single hour. For this reason, the fire of their savage executioners appeared cool to them, for they kept before their view, escape from that fire which is eternal and never shall be quenched, and look forward with the eyes of their heart to those good things which are laid up for such as endure, things which ear has not heard nor eye seen, neither have entered into the heart of man, but were revealed by the Lord to them, inasmuch as they were no longer men, but had already become angels. And in like manner, those who were condemned to the wild beasts endured dreadful tortures, being stretched out upon beds full of spikes, and subjected to various other kinds of torments, in order that, if it were possible, the tyrant might by their lingering tortures lead them to a denial of Christ. For the devil did indeed invent many things against them, but thanks be to God, he could not prevail over all. For the most noble Germanicus strengthened the timidity of others by his patience and fought heroically with the wild beasts. For when the proconsul sought to persuade him and urged him to take pity upon his age, he attracted the wild beast toward himself and provoked it, being desirous to escape all the more quickly from an unrighteous and impious world. But upon this, the whole multitude, marveling at the nobility of mind displayed by the devout and godly race of Christians, cried out, Away with the atheists, let Polycarp be sought out. Now one named Quintus, a Phrygian, who was but lately come from Phrygia, when he saw the wild beast, uh, became afraid. This was the man who forced himself and some others to come forward voluntarily for trial. Him, the proconsul, after many entreaties, persuaded to swear and to offer sacrifice. Wherefore, brethren, we do not commend those who give themselves up to suffering, seeing the gospel does not teach us to do so. But the most admirable Polycarp, when he first heard that he was sought for, was in no measure disturbed, but resolved to continue in the city. However, in deference to the wish of many, he was persuaded to leave it. He therefore departed to a country house not far distant from the city. There he stayed with a few friends, engaged in nothing else night and day than praying for all men and for the churches throughout the world according to his usual custom. And while he was praying, a vision presented itself to him three days before he was taken. And behold, the pillow under his head seemed to him on fire. Upon this, turning to those that were with him, he said to them prophetically, I must be burnt alive. And when those who sought for him were at hand, he departed to another dwelling, whither his pursuers immediately came after him. And when they found him not, they seized upon two youths that were there, one of whom, being subjected to torture, confessed. It was thus impossible that he should continue hid, since those that betrayed him were of his own household. The Irenarch, then, whose office is the same as that of Claronymus, 
by name Herod hastened to bring him into the stadium. This all happened that he might fulfill his special lot, being made a partaker of Christ, and that they who betrayed him might undergo the punishment of Judas himself. His pursuers then, along with horsemen, and taking the youth with them, went forth at supper time on the day of preparation with their usual weapons, as if going out against a robber. And having come about evening to the place where he was, they found him lying down in the upper room in a certain little house, from which he might have escaped into another place. But he refused, saying, The will of God be done. So when he heard that they had come, he went down and spoke with them. And as those that were present marveled at his age and constancy, some of them said, Was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? Immediately then, in that very hour, he ordered that something to eat and drink should be set before them, as much indeed as they cared for, while he besought them to allow him an hour to pray without disturbance. And on their giving him leave, he stood and prayed, being full of the grace of God, so that he could not cease for two full hours to the astonishment of those who heard him, inasmuch that many began to repent that they had come forth against such a godly and venerable old man. Now, as soon as he had ceased praying, having made mention of all that had at any time come in contact with him, both small and great, illustrious and obscure, as well as the whole Catholic Church throughout the world, the time of his departure having arrived, they set him upon an ass and conducted him into the city, the day being that of the great Sabbath. And the Irenarch Herod, accompanied by his father, Nicetus, both riding in a chariot, met him. And taking him up into the chariot, they seated themselves beside him and endeavored to persuade him, saying, What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions, and so make sure of safety? But he at first gave them no answer, and when they continued to urge him, he said, I shall not do as you advise me. So they, having no hope of persuading him, began to speak bitter words unto him, and cast him with violence out of the chariot, insomuch that in getting down from the carriage, he dislocated his leg by the fall. But without being disturbed, and as if suffering nothing, he went eagerly forward with all haste, and was conducted to the stadium where the tumult was so great that there was no possibility of being heard. Now as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show yourself a man, Polycarp. No one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect for your age and other similar things, according to their custom. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, Away with the atheists. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked, heathen, then in the stadium, and waving his hand toward them, while with groans he looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheists. Then the proconsul urging him and saying, Swear and I will set you at liberty, reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior?
And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since you are vainly urgent that as you say I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and you shall hear them. The proconsul replied, Persuade the people. But Polycarp said, To you I have thought it right to offer an account of my faith, for we are taught to give all due honor, which entails no injury upon ourselves to the powers and authorities which are ordained by God. But as to these, I do not deem them worthy of receiving any account from me. The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast you unless you repent. But he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. But again the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. While he spoke these and many other things, he was filled with confidence and joy, and his countenance was full of grace, so that not merely did it not fall as if troubled by the things said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his herald to proclaim in the midst of the stadium thrice, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. This proclamation having been made by the herald, the whole multitude, both of the heathens and Jews, who dwelt in Smyrna, cried out with an uncontrollable fury and in a loud voice, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the overthrower of our gods, he who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or to worship the gods. Speaking thus, they cried out and besought Philip the Asiarch to let loose a lion upon Polycarp. But Philip answered that it was not lawful for him to do so, seeing the, sh the shows of wild beasts were already finished. Then it seemed good to them to cry out with one consent that Polycarp should be burnt alive. For thus it behooved the vision which was revealed to him in regard to his pillow to be fulfilled. When seeing it on fire as he was praying, he turned about and said prophetically to the faithful that were with him, I must be burnt alive. This then was carried into effect with greater speed than it was spoken. The multitude immediately gathering together wood and faggots about the shops and baths, the Jews especially, according to custom, eagerly assisting them in it. And when the funeral pile was ready, Polycarp, laying aside all his garments and loosing his girdle, sought also to take off his sandals, a thing he was not accustomed to do, inasmuch as every one of the faithful was always eager of who should touch first his skin. For on account of his holy life, he was, even before his martyrdom, adorned with every kind of good, Immediately they, then they surrounded him with those substances which had been prepared for the funeral pile. But when they were about also to fix him with nails, he said, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the pile. They did not nail him then, but simply bound him. 
And he, placing his hands behind him and being bound like a distinguished ram taken out of a great flock for sacrifice and prepared to be an acceptable burnt offering unto God, looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers and every creature, and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs, in the cup of your Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both soul and body, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Ghost, among whom may I be accepted this day before you as a fat and acceptable sacrifice, according as you, the eternal truthful God, have foreordained, have revealed beforehand to me, and now have fulfilled. Wherefore also I pray you for all these things. I bless you, I glorify you, along with the everlasting heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with whom to you and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. When they had pronounced this Amen, and so finished his prayer, those who were appointed for the purpose kindled the fire, and as the flame blazed forth in great fury, we to whom it was given to witness it beheld a great miracle, and have been preserved that we might report to others what then took place. For the fire shaping itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship, when filled with the wind, encompassed as by a circle the body of the martyr. And he appeared within not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked, or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Moreover, we perceived such a sweet odor coming from the pile as if frankincense or some precious spice had been smoking there. At length, when those wicked men perceived that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to go near and pierce him through with a dagger. And on his doing this, there came forth a dove and a great quantity of blood, so that the fire was extinguished. And all the people wondered that there should be such a difference between the unbelievers and the elect, of whom this most admirable Polycarp was one, having in our own times been an apostolic and prophetic teacher and bishop of the Catholic Church, which is in Smyrna. For every word that went out of his mouth either has been or shall be accomplished. But when the adversary of the race of the righteous, the envious, malicious, and wicked one, perceived the impressive nature of his martyrdom, and considered the blameless life he had led from the beginning, and how he was now crowned with the wreath of immortality. Having beyond dispute received his reward, he did his utmost that not the least memorial of him should be taken away by us, although many desired to do this, and to become possessors of his holy flesh. For this end he suggested it to Nicetus, the father of Herod, the brother of Alce, to go and entreat the governor not to give up his body to be buried, lest, said he, forsaking him that was crucified, they begin to worship this one. This he said at the suggestion, suggestion and urgent persuasion of the Jews, who also watched us as we sought to take him out of the fire, being ignorant of this, that it is neither possible for us ever to forsake Christ who suffered for the salvation of such as shall be saved throughout the whole world, the blameless one for the sinners, nor to worship any other. For him indeed as being the Son of God we adore, 
but the martyrs as disciples and followers of the Lord we worthily love on account of their extraordinary affection toward their own king and master, of whom may we also be made companions and fellow disciples. The centurion then, seeing the strife uh, excited by the Jews, placed the body in the midst of the fire and consumed it. Accordingly, we afterwards took up his bones as being more precious than the most exquisite jewels and more purified than gold and deposited them in a fitting place, whither being gathered together as opportunity is allowed us, with joy and rejoicing the Lord shall grant us to celebrate the anniversary of his martyrdom, both in memory of those who have already finished their course and for the exercising and preparation of those yet to walk in their steps. This then is the account of, of the blessed Polycarp, who being the twelfth that was martyred in Smyrna, reckoning those also from Philadelphia, yet occupies a place of his own in the memory of all men, insomuch as he is everywhere spoken of by the heathen themselves. He was not merely an illustrious teacher, but also a preeminent martyr, whose martyrdom all desire to imitate, as having been altogether consistent with the gospel of Christ. For having, through patience, overcome the unjust governor, and thus acquired the crown of immortality, he now with the apostles and all the righteous in heaven rejoicingly glorifies God, even the Father, and blesses our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, the governor of our bodies, and the shepherd of the Catholic Church throughout the world. Since then you requested that we would at large make you acquainted with what really took place. We have for the present sent you this summary account through our brother Marcus. When, therefore, you have yourselves read this epistle, be pleased to send it to the brethren at a greater distance, that they also may glorify the Lord who makes such choice of his own servants, to him who is able to bring us all by his grace and goodness into his everlasting kingdom, through his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to him be glory and honor and power and majesty forever. Amen. Salute all the saints. They that are with us salute you and Everestus, who wrote this epistle with all his house. Now the blessed Polycarp suffered martyrdom on the second day of the month of Xanthicus, just begun, the seventh day before the calends of May, on the great Sabbath at the eighth hour. He was taken by Herod, Philip the Tralian being high priest, Statius Quadratus being proconsul, but Jesus Christ being king forever, to whom be glory, honor, and majesty, and everlasting throne from generation to generation. Amen. We wish you, brethren, all happiness while you walk according to the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with whom be glory to the Father and of the Holy Spirit for the salvation of his holy elect, after whose example the blessed Polycarp suffered, following in whose steps may we too be found in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. These things Caius transcribed from the copy of Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, having himself been intimate with Irenaeus. And I, Socrates, transcribed them at Corinth, from the copy of Caius, grace be with you all. And I again, Peonius, wrote them from the previous written copy, having carefully searched into them, and the blessed Polycarp having manifested them to me through a revelation, even as I shall show in what follows. I have collected these things when they had almost faded away through the lapse of time, that the Lord Jesus Christ may also gather me along with his elect into his heavenly kingdom, to whom with the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm sure you have a lot of comments and thoughts about that text, uh, as well as maybe some thoughts about last week and Ignatius' text. And what we're going to do, like we did last time, we take a quick break. 
We're going to come back together for five, maybe ten minutes. Um, I have a few comments about this text, as well as I want to hear some of your thoughts on it, if you can stay around. Any initial thoughts or comments? Thoughts or comments? Okay. Both Ignatius and Polycarp, before they were martyred, seem to address the situation about gathering body parts. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's irreverent. Yeah, but, yeah. And said, um, basically counseled that it not happen. Did their, they seemed worried about it. They didn't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. That, you know, um, did their followers ascribe that to modesty? Or did they just set aside their wishes? Mm-hmm. Or did they take the fact that there were remains as some sort of proof that they needed to be gathered and reverenced? It's a good question. You'll remember in the text of Ignatius, he says, um, he, when he's writing to the, to his epistle to the Romans, he says, I hope to be eaten so that there's nothing left of me in order for what? Not to inconvenience the church, right? Because they're not seeing themselves as the people after them see themselves, right? In all humility, they're seeing themselves still running the race. But once the race is complete, right, once they've, mar- they've been martyred for the faith, the, in a sense, the situation changes a bit, okay? So I think there's an honest modesty there where they're not going to say, hey, yeah, yeah, after I get eaten, make sure you take my relics so that you can go and kiss them and so forth. And Other thoughts or comments? I guess I was kind of fascinated by um, the first couple of paragraphs here that they were absent from the body. They, when they suffered such torments, they were absent from the body. Yeah, you get that. We'll get that next week with um, with um, Mary of Egypt, where the physical demands of the body become transparent. They're just they're not there for for them. Similar, you'll notice after the resurrection, where Christ eats with the with the apostles and so forth. He walks with them, but then he is able to come through locked doors. The material world for the saint or for the holy one is at their disposal as it's quoted in the Catechism, all of the things of creation were made for man. And man, in turn, was made to offer all things back to God in love. The created world was made to be at our service. And therefore, when Christ needs to walk across water, it's not a miracle in the sense that, yeah, it might be out of the ordinary for our experience, but Christ walking across water is normal. Christ walking forth from the tomb is the way it's supposed to be. Well, no, it's not supposed to be. Death isn't supposed to be there in some sense, right? However, that death has no, no hold upon man. Man was not made for death. And so the, you see at the hand of the saints that the material world kind of gives way. It is at their service when necessary, and at other times it fades away. You'll see this with Mary of Egypt where she does things she, heads, she goes, she repents, she lives a very sinful life that we're going to be reading, and then she repents, and she goes out into the desert at the command of the mother of God, and she lives her life in the desert without food, and for years and years and years, her clothes fall, fell off of her because the sun baked down and beat down, and yet she survived. Why? Because she had no need of the material world. It was at her service, being a, a holy one of God. He did suffer the torments, yes, 
but I'm, I'm, all I'm saying is that at times you see this with, the, with the, the followers of Christ where these miraculous things, strange things are happening. And it's just that beautiful thing that we're meant to be, to have dominion over creation. When Christ goes about healing people in the gospel, he's simply doing what he's supposed to do as a man, as the king of creation. He has dominion over it. And one who has dominion over something sets it in order. He sees something out of order, he makes it right. And so he's walking through the, the, the world having dominion over creation. We, through our chrismation, are granted also that dominion. I'm just thinking, is it, is it not like an early example, too, for the martyrs of redemptive suffering? You know? Yeah. Sure. I guess that's in, in, in response there. Yep. Other thoughts or comments? Yes. Can I ask something about Constantine? I probably can't answer it, but go ahead. Okay. Um, I think he converted at the end of his life to Arianism, and his sons were Arian. Were they? No. It, well, you, you, uh, mixing up two things there. That it's not clear what Constantine did except uh, the world at that point was virtually Arian. Okay? It was St. Athanasius and a few others that brought the church back. Okay? But, it, but it said that the world awoke uh, and, and it, was, it found itself Arian. Okay? But Constantine was involved in a practice that was very common at that time and later condemned by the church of those who refused baptism until the moment of death because they didn't want to fall into sin again. Why? Because at that time, if you committed a, a, a serious sin, you only could go to confession once in your life. And when you went to confession, the penance you served was oftentimes years and years. Okay? It was a much... It, it, the church developed... The, uh, the sacrament of confession developed in a way where it became, in a sense, more accessible to the faithful. But at that time, it was a, a much more dramatic and serious thing. One time in your life... Otherwise, next time you sin, or mortally sin, okay, gone. Excommunicated from the church. You're going to see a practice, by the way, tomorrow night that also reaches back to the earliest days of the church, and that is going to confession in front of the faithful. Hold on. I don't mean publicly. I think we should, actually. It would be good. But, uh, but no, but the, the, we don't have a confessional. In the, in the Byzantine church, traditionally, there's no confessional. There's an icon of Christ in the front of the church, and you come up and you stand next to the priest. Don't worry, you don't have to go to confession while you're there. Um, but you'll see people going to confession from the, from the community, and you go up and you confess there, and the people see you going to confession. It goes way back before they ever built walls around the confessional. Other thoughts or comments about the text, maybe, itself? While I can come down to exact details seemed as I'm going through here I'm almost hearing whispers of the passion account he's being betrayed you know he gives yeah. something um, a witness before the um, the powers who are the governing powers and in the end there's just almost like he's connecting Polycarp back to what happened with Jesus absolutely yeah and and um, this gets to the point one the one point I wanted to make um, about the the participation of the Christian in the life of Christ you remember last year last week when we read Ignatius, his whole goal was to be likened to Christ in every way possible, to be a participant in who and what Christ is. Okay? St. Peter in his epistle says that Christ became man to make us partakers in the divine nature, to give us a real participation in his life. And the early Christians understood this, and hopefully we still understand it today, to be likened to Christ in every possible way. This is why we're doing Lent to be journeying with Christ from the Mount of Transfiguration to Jerusalem for, your, for the Passion, 
to climb the hill of Jerusalem with Christ, the mountains of Jerusalem with Christ, to be ready, willingly, to say yes to whatever God asks of us. This is the purpose of the fast, to discipline ourselves to the point where the body is not the one that makes us do things, but our intellect makes a choice for the truth. No matter what the consequences are, this is what Adam would refuse to do in the Garden of Eden, to face the serpent no matter what, the, no matter what and to trust and have faith in God. The Catechism says that at the moment of the fall, Adam and Eve lost their trust in God, that he would be their protector. Um, and so you get this, this aspect in Ignatius, also in Polycarp, and all of the martyrs in, in, in the life of Mary of Egypt, we'll see, um, we'll see next week, that the whole goal is to be sacrificed with Christ, to be a sacrifice for Christ. Okay, so I have a question for you, and then we'll conclude. What is sacrifice? What is sacrifice? It's the heart of the Christian life. What is it? If you had to define it. Offer it up. To offer it up, okay? To offer what up? Sue says her prayers, that's true. Yeah, okay. Any other thoughts, comments? To give up something good for a greater good. Very good, okay. To give up something that is good, yes, food, for a greater good. And the question I have for you, what is that greater good? It just seems like when I think about the sacrifice and the cross and Jesus on the cross, it's love. Okay. Whatever separates you from God. To what it, for whatever separates, to set aside whatever separates you from God. These are good. I want to read you quickly from the Holy Father's book on Spirit of the Liturgy, which was recommended by Father Fessio when he gave his talk. He says, what is worship? In all religions, sacrifice is the, at the heart of worship. The reason I want to read this to you is this is the heart, the whole point of what the martyrs are doing, or they see themselves doing. Some would say, as the proconsul, what a waste, Polycarp. 86 years old. Have some respect for your age. In all religions, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. But this is a concept that has been buried under the debris of endless misunderstanding. The common view is that sacrifice has something to do with destruction. It means handing over to God a reality that is in some way precious to man. Doesn't that sound right? He's going to say no, it's not. Now this handing over presupposes that it is withdrawn from the use by man. And that can only happen through its destruction, its definitive removal from the hands of man. Yes, this is what we've heard. But this immediately raises the question, what pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? Is anything really surrendered to God through destruction? One answer is that destruction always conceals within itself the act of acknowledging God's sovereignty over all things. But can such a mechanical act really serve God's glory? Obviously not. True surrender to God looks very different. It consists, according to the fathers, in the union of man and creation with God. Belonging to God has nothing to do with destruction or non-being. It is rather a way of being. It means emerging from the state of separation and apparent autonomy or existing only for oneself and in oneself. It means losing oneself as the only possible way of finding oneself. 
That is why St. Augustine could say that the true sacrifice is the Chivitas Dei, that is, love transformed mankind, the city of God. The divinization of creation and the surrender of all things to God, that is the purpose of the world, that is the essence of sacrifice and worship. Belonging to God. And this is what the martyrs were doing, man for man. They said, this is what Christ was doing. Christ was murdered, as I said last week. He was murdered. And God does not rejoice in the destruction of his creation, nor the destruction of his son. That's called child abuse. It's one I've heard that's called cosmic child abuse. Rather, the sacrifice of God, of Jesus Christ, and of the martyrs, was the fact that they stood on this earth, they professed the truth in love to God, giving their whole life to Him, no matter what they did to Him. When they crucified Him upon the cross, He did it willingly because it didn't matter what men could do or what the devil could do because He, in His heart, loved God and in that love shared Himself with the Father, and the Father in love returned and shared his life with the Son. Similarly with the martyrs, they gave their life to God, and God in turn gave his life to them. And that life is eternal and has no end. And there is nothing that any fire or any sword or any torture can do about that. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, we're done for this evening. And don't forget the relic of St. Polycarp that his followers collected is sitting right there in the back of this room, only at the Institute of Catholic Culture, right? All right, let's conclude in prayer. Please stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. As a sharer of the ways and a successor to the throne of the apostles, O inspired of God, thou foundest disciples to be a means of ascent to divine vision. Wherefore, having rightly divided the word of truth, thou didst also contest for the faith, even unto blood. O hero martyr Polycarp, intercede with Christ our God, that our souls may be saved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. For more information, recorded programs, or schedules of upcoming events, visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org.